Guys, welcome to week three of our spring break road trip. Destination, a place called life. This concept of a road trip that leads to life. Well, as I said, it, it has been the palette upon which our artists paint, the script upon which our songwriters score. Walt Whitman, he, he wrote the song of the open road. Charles Carroll, you might remember, he made his fame by taking us with him on the road. You too sang of a street or a place where streets had no name. And Zach Brown, he sings of a Highway 20 ride. Rascal Flats, they told us that life is a highway. And you know what they wanted to do? They wanted to ride it all night long. But you see, I don't. I want to get to the elusive place called life. The one that our singers and songwriters have always told us is just at the end of the road, just around the bend. But where did this shared fascination start? Inspired by the Spirit of God, the Bible was written by 40 men of diverse backgrounds over the course of around 1,500 years. And there was one metaphor that they loved to use over and over across the centuries. It was, well, believe it or not, it was the road. Now, some called it a highway, others a path, but the concept is quite clear in the Scriptures. God is always calling His people out from a place called here onto the road that leads to life. Moses, he told the Israelites, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Given these two destinations, the psalmist wrote of God that you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is, is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. In fact, the writer of Proverbs tells us the path of life leads upward for the wise, but cautions regarding the adulteress that she does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Guys, that's what this series has been about, pondering this path of life. Because for many of us, our ways have been unstable, and, and we didn't know it. Though truthfully, I think a lot of us feel it. Jesus, he cautioned us to enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. But make no mistake, guys, it can be found. Paul, the great first century evangelist and missionary, Paul, who would go on to write most of the New Testament, Luke tells us that Paul found life, and where did he find it? on the road to Damascus. And my goal for this series is that you and I would find life too, on the road, specifically these four roads of Easter, the ones that Jesus historically and metaphorically took during his final week on earth. So, on this road trip, week one, we journeyed with Jesus in his, we journeyed with Jesus in, in his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, what we now refer to as Palm Sunday. And we notice that for Jesus, the journey is less than jubilant because Jesus, the Scriptures teach us, is weeping. He's crying over a city and a people that worship Him with palms and lips and songs and words, but whose hearts are far from Him. Their personal expectations and agendas for Jesus were blinding them to the work of God in their lives. And guys, our expectations and agendas for Jesus do the same thing. So week one of our road trip was all about deciding who was going to drive. Is Jesus merely our co-pilot or does he get the keys 
because on any road trip, the guy with the keys is ultimately in control. Week two. Week two, we looked at the path towards Gethsemane. This garden, which literally in the Hebrew was named Olive Press, where Jesus faced the greatest pressure and temptation any human being ever has. When given the opportunity to walk away from the cup of wrath, God, God was, that he was uh, the cup of wrath of God that he was willing to drink on our behalf, Jesus chose to break the age-old sin pattern of see, desire, and take, and instead he prayed over and over and over again. Thy will, not my will, be done. See, week two, if you remember, it brought with it the question we need to ask ourselves on this road trip. Where are we going? Is your life about your preferred destination where you just will spend your time, see, desire, take, see, desire, take, or will you, in order to find life, begin to live with a thy will, not my will mindset? This week, this week, well, week three of our road trip begins, well, it begins with the most difficult part of the journey because road trips, road trips almost never go as planned. Two years ago, my, my son Caleb was studying abroad for the semester in Sydney, Australia, so my wife and I took our two girls, and we decided this would provide a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for us to go and visit him. Now, being a man of somewhat modest means, a trip to Australia while at the same time paying college tuition in Australia is not something easily financed. So we were super blessed when my brother-in-law, an ex-airline employee, offered us his travel vouchers to cover our airfare. They were going to allow us to travel at a significantly discounted cost, but the catch was we would need to travel, as they say in the industry, standby. Meaning, as long as there are seats on the plane we want to fly on, we fly. If not, we wait. Now, I know you might hear that, and it might sound super sketchy, and why would you agree to that, but really, it's, it's not that random. You see, you can go online and see every flight and how many empty seats there are and what the possibilities are percentage-wise of them filling up, right? And so it's actually not that difficult. You simply pick the one with the most empty seats and you should be fine. Or so we thought. Well, we didn't anticipate a massive storm hitting the Northeast the night before we were going to travel, which shut down all the flights of the New York area the night before. Now, you might think, as I did, why would I care? That's the night before. Here's the problem. They rebooked all of those people into our empty seats and then proceeded to fill empty seats in every plane leaving JFK that day. When did we find this out? As we got to the gate, already having checked our baggage at JFK. Checked our baggage through to Australia. Now, I'm a resourceful guy, right? And with the help of my brother-in-law, we determined that if we got an Uber and raced across town to LaGuardia, we could catch another flight with a couple of empty seats. It would still get us to LA. We could still make our connection. Everything would work out. So we ran. I mean, we ran out of JFK. Got the Uber, rushed across town, went through security again, rushed to the gate at LaGuardia, only to be told that the flight had been canceled due to mechanical issues. So there we were in Queens, no ride home, no bags, no flight, and no way of getting our L.A. connection. But hey, I'm a resourceful guy, or so I thought, so we find a late-night flight to Atlanta that if we hop on, we could get to Atlanta, get a couple hours of sleep, and then get an early morning flight from Atlanta, L.A., take a different connection. And so we did that. 
worked out, got to Atlanta, slept in our clothes, got to the airport super early, and made it to, to L.A. Problem is we got to L.A. at like 9 in the morning, and our flight for Sydney didn't leave till 10 at night, so we had to kill a whole day. But hey, I'm resourceful. So we rented a car to take in the sights of Southern California. One of those sites was the Santa Monica Pier and Beach, where at around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we took a family picture in front of the Pacific Ocean. And it was right then when a rogue wave came in, knocked me down, soaked me to the bone, and forced me to fly 14 hours all the way to Australia with soaking wet socks and underwear. To this day, there are still parts of me cold and wrinkled from this adventure. A trip that should have taken less than a day wound up taking me three and wound up with me paying for half of the flights full price, not to mention brushing my teeth with my finger for days. See, here's the thing. The thing with road trips, they tend not to go the way they think that, we're that we think they're going to go. See, any road trip of any significance is almost always going to have hardships along the way. And so the question for week three is, when they come, and they will, will you give up, give in, or turn back? And again, just like last week, guys, this isn't just an allegorical question. It's a historical one. Some of you know the story. God leads the nation of Israel out of their captivity in Egypt after 400 years of being enslaved to these brutal captors. After God took them, if you might remember from last week, on the roundabout way, because God was determining where they're going, right? He takes them through the Red Sea. And again, don't miss this now. God frees them miraculously from their captors. He opens the Red Sea for them to walk through. He closes, he closes it over their Egyptian pursuers. And what do they do as soon as they get to the other side? They grumble. And I mean they grumble about everything. They don't like the water. They don't like the food. Fourteen times. When you read these accounts, you can't believe it. Fourteen times they grumble to God. Who's taking them to their promised land? A land described as flowing with milk and honey. Fourteen times they complain and they long for the days back in Egypt. They recount how delicious the melons were. In fact, it culminates in the Old Testament book of Numbers when they turn on Moses. Quote, and they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Guys, do you see? Do you see how close you can be to being set free, how close you can be to new life, purposeful life, abundant life, but you'd never find it on the road trip towards this new life if you let the obstacles of the old life get you to give in, give up, or turn back. Because here's what I can promise you based on historical fact. On this road trip, you will find obstacles. Pain, hurt, suffering. See, week three of our road trip, it brings us to what's become known to many as the Via Dolorosa, which is Latin for the sorrowful, sorrowful way. It's often translated the way of suffering. The Via Dolorosa is the traditional route in Jerusalem which Jesus traveled on the day of his crucifixion. It runs from the judgment seat of Pilate, a place called the Praetorium, to the place of his crucifixion on Calvary. After his judgment by Pontius Pilate, Matthew records that Pilate, quote, had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. 
And then the governor's soldiers took Jesus in the pra- into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him, took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his his clothes on him. And then they led him away to crucify him. And Jesus, his walk down the way of sorrows began. The Bible doesn't specifically mention the Via Dolorosa, but here's what we know from Scripture, that Jesus winds up carrying, stumbling from the praetorium to the site on Mount Calvary. He carries his cross where he's crucified. Here's the hard truth. In order to get to Easter Sunday, you have to walk the way of suffering on Friday. In order for you and I to get to our destination of promised life, our promised land, each of us is going to have to spend some time on the sorrowful way. And there is nothing more powerful, more persuasive than personal pain, right, that can come in and get you to turn around right when you're so close to life. The Israelites were willing to give up the promised land when it was almost within sight because of personal pain. The question for us today is, will we give up on our promise, the promise of life, for the same reason? If if you've been with us over this last crazy year, you might remember last March as we headed into our own year of sorrows here, I I shared with you something um, called the Stockdale Principle. Let me remind you of it if you're not familiar with it. It comes from something that Admiral Jim Stockdale had shared um, during an interview. Jim Stockdale, Admiral Stockdale, is the highest-ranking U.S. military officer that was imprisoned at the infamous Hanoi Hilton during the Vietnam War. For eight years, eight years, eight years, while a prisoner of war there, he was tortured over 20 times because he refused to participate in a North Vietnamese propaganda campaign. In fact, he actually disfigured his own face so that they would stop, putting him, stop trying to put him on camera. Stockdale was asked by his interviewer, how does one survive eight years in this kind of camp? His answer was fascinating for all of, those, for all of us who are going to have to walk this path of sorrows. He said what got him through was that I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I'd get out, but also that I'd prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, he said, I wouldn't trade. The follow-up question was this. They said, well, what about those who didn't make it out? His counterintuitive answer? Oh, that's easy, he said. The ones who didn't make it out were the optimists. They were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter, and Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again. And they all died, eventually, of a broken heart. And then he introduced the paradox. He said, you must never confuse faith that you'll prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, 
with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. What's the paradox? You never give up hope, but you never deceive yourself about your current reality. My friends, this is the paradox of our journey towards the life Jesus promises us, a life where we will prevail in the end. We must never give up on that hope, but we hold that hope in tension, in a relational balance with the truth regarding the brutal facts of our path of sorrows. This paradox is at the very heart of our faith. We have a wonderful destination, an otherworldly future hope, but we cannot let that blind us to our current situation. Because if we do, if we're not honest with ourselves about our situation, we will lose hope. We will give in, we will give up, and we will turn back. And in the end, we will die. Now, let me make it even more personal. Many of us, many of us will give up on this journey towards resurrected life when we hit the way of sorrows. And that's because for many of us, we were handed a version of Christianity that said, well, now that we're believers, now that we've prayed a prayer, right, there would be no more suffering. Or, or maybe we were brought up under, under the guise, under kind of the moral standard of today that as long as you're a good person, or, or your good stuff outweighs your bad stuff, then you should expect good in return. It's kind of like we were handed the karma principle with a little Jesus sprinkled into it. But that's not Christianity. I, I, Andy Stanley has a great line about this. He says, Christians have never believed in a God who doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people. Christians believe the worst possible thing happened to the best possible person. We just read about it. There is one other fairly famous road, if you've been around the church, that you might have heard of. You don't hear of it as much today as you used to, but it was a, it was a teaching road. It was called the, the Romans Road. It was a way of explaining our faith, what it is we believe, by using verses pulled from the book of Romans in the New Testament. The Romans Road begins with what Stockdale might call the brutal facts of our current situation. Paul wrote to the Romans that, quote, there is no one righteous. There's not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, this Romans road tells us that we've all sinned, every one of us. None of us are free from its clutches, its snare. In fact, it's actually worse than that. It's not just that we sin by our actions. The Bible actually talks about sin as something even more powerful than that. The Bible refers to sin as both personal, the things that, that we do, but also as a global force. That it's not just me that sins and then suffers on account of my own actions but that sin is a powerful force at work in the whole world. It's in me, it's in you, it's in your kids, it's in our cultures and our systems. Nothing has escaped its power. And so we suffer, all of us, sometimes seemingly randomly suffer under that power. Now you see this over and over. Beginning in Genesis, we're into a sinless garden 
we, we see what happens, right? Adam and Eve, they see, they desire, they take, they fall to their temptation. We discussed this last week. And what happens? God says that because you've listened to the voice of your wife, he says this to Adam, and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. Cursed is the ground. Paul puts it this way. For the creation, the entire creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He goes, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul talks about sin the way, well, for the way that we've talked about for the last 12 months, coronavirus. You can't see it, you can't touch it, but you know it's there, it's out there taking people down. It's, it's like gravity. You, you can't see it, but it's everywhere, touching everyone, impacting everyone. You can mask up all you want, but somehow it still seems to get through. And see, he, here's the problem with sin. It's sin uh, that all of us will that causes all of us to take this walk down a path of sorrows. Here's what I mean. Sure, sometimes our difficulties are merely consequences of our own bad choices. Is that true? Yes. But even if you've made nothing but good choices, you will still walk in this life the road of suffering. Why? Sin. Now, step two on this Romans road is this. For the wages of sin is death. This force that's at work in me and you, and in your husband and wife, and kids and neighbor, in your home and work and school, it always leads to the same place, death. None of us is getting out of here alive. And that's how I know, no matter how rich you are, how famous you are, how successful you are, how accomplished you are, how popular you are, how loved you are, all of these circumstantial things we pursue, it doesn't matter how many of them you get, all of us will one day walk the path of sorrow, the way of suffering, because of sin. Sin, when it enters the world, it brings death and all of its minions and workers with it, all kinds of hurt and pain and suffering, everything we love, everyone we love. It all dies. None of us can avoid it or dodge it. By the way, we can't, we can't have enough faith to get around it. We can't be good enough to avoid it. It touches all of us. But you see, week three on this road trip, the Via Della Rosa, it begs this one question. Will you, when it touches you, and it will, will you be shocked by it? How could this happen to me? I'm a Christian. Will you be surprised by it and turn back, give up, give in, go back to your own Egypt, whatever your old captor may be? See, here, here's the brutal facts. Christianity following Jesus has never been and will never be about avoiding a path of sorrows. You can't. And anybody that tells you otherwise is either, either trying to get you to send them some money, to buy their book, or they're reading the Bible through a lens that is horribly distorted. Every one of us is going to walk this path. And I have to tell you, it's likely not to be fair. Many times it will not seem equitable. In fact, I know for some of us it isn't fair. It isn't equitable. 
Some of you have tasted far more pain and loss than would seem to be your fair share. And while this is our shared brutal truth, we must face it or else we're going to lose faith. We can't pretend it doesn't exist because if we do, if we create a faith that just uh, pretends it's not there, when we taste it, we'll give up, give in, and turn back, and we'll die. You see now, the counterbalancing part of the paradox, the stop three on the Romans road, if you will, well, it's this. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but, but, but the gift of God, the gift now, not what was due your good works or large faith or generous giving, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul would sum it up this way. He, he says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, we just read that, and death through sin, and this way death came to all people because all sinned, there's our brutal fact, right? Here comes the paradox. For if by the trespass of that one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and, and gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? How much more will we reign in life? There's that word. See, See, that's where our road trip is heading, life. How do we get there? We understand the tension, the paradox of current suffering versus present hope, the desert, the promised land. Paul would say, how much greater is eternity in the promised land than 40 years in the desert? Whatever you do, don't turn back. How much more will you reign in this life and the one to come when you compare it just to the loss, the losses that we're all going to, to suffer along the way. This is our great hope. It's, it's the last stop on the Romans road. It, it's what Paul came to understand about the paradox. How you weigh these things out are, are brutal facts about our situation and our future hope. Here's how Paul weighed them. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy of comparing with the glory that'll be revealed in us. I love that language. Not worth comparing. It's like the Mets to the Yankees. It's like broccoli to ice cream. It's like me to Ryan Gosling. It's not even worth comparing. In fact, he'd go on to tell the Corinthians, this is why, therefore, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, why are we wasting away? Sin, our own, and the whole power of it in the world. Yet inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. How? A new life force, an eternal one that sin can't touch. Paul goes, and Paul's a guy that suffered. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That far, far, far outweighs. See, there's the balance again, the paradox. That far outweighs them all. This paradox, it will, because of sin, it will not be a metaphorical one for you. You will walk the path of suffering in this life. Jesus, <laughs> he made one promise none of us like. In this world, you will have problems. But you're going to need to decide to press on towards life or give up, give in, and turn back. 
You're going to have to weigh the sorrows now against the glory to come. Yet here is the amazing thing about Jesus. Jesus did not forgive our sin from the comforts of a heavenly throne. Jesus did not pronounce forgiveness. Jesus purchased forgiveness for you and I at the cost of his own unfair, inequitable suffering. The most common question we tend to ask on this part of our journey towards life when we hit these moments of suffering is, where is God? How could he allow all this suffering? And the answer is, he's right here with us, in it, on that same path, choosing to subject himself, think about this, choosing to subject himself to the power of sin too, despite the fact that he himself did not sin. I heard it put this way this week, that this story, this road of suffering Jesus chooses, it reveals to us what no human being had ever imagined before about God, that he would be a wounded God, a broken God, a scarred God. Isaiah, the prophet, had, had tried to warn his people. He wrote prophesying of Jesus that he, he would be despised and rejected by mankind. He would be a man of suffering and familiar with pain like one from, who's, from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. He, he'll be held in low esteem, and yet his own people missed him. Why? Because they were blinded by their own personal expectations of a God who would not suffer. Theologian John Stott, in his book, The Cross, this is so good, he writes, I've entered many Buddhist temples, and I've stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, his arms folded, his eyes closed with a ghost of a smile. But each time I turn away to the lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, plunged in God-forsaken darkness, and he concludes that this is the God for me. He entered our world of flesh and blood, death and tears. There's still a question mark against human suffering but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolized divine suffering. Thomas, the disciple who would go on to pick up the moniker Doubter because he said he wouldn't believe the story of Jesus' resurrection until he saw him. You know, Jesus appeared to him and he says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach your hand and put it into my side. You see, Jesus had a new resurrection body. Make no mistake about it, he was able to eat and travel. He was even given, given powers he didn't have. He, he, he passed through a locked door at one point. But in his resurrected body, he still carries the scars of those, those nails in his hands. God says one day he will wipe away every tear, but Jesus still carries those scars. John Ortberg says that the early followers of Jesus were staggered by this. They didn't know what to make of it. And so they wrote that maybe Jesus retained his scars not because he, he couldn't heal them, but because they reflected his love more than unwounded hands ever could, concluding that maybe there's a beauty to a wounded body that an unwounded body does not know. 
Jesus chose to join us, and he walked in our paradox too. The movement of Jesus got started by two moments, the way of sorrows that he traveled down, the Via Della Rosa, and then the hope of his resurrection. You see, we're called to weigh the present sufferings we all face with the glory of a future where there will be no more sin, where every tear will be wiped away, where we will not just live with Christ, but we will reign with Christ, co-heirs of the new world in a sinless place. Imagine that, an eternity of reigning in a place of beauty and unending goodness. That's our paradox. That's our equation. That's what we must weigh. Jesus' equation was different. Jesus' sufferings were only the beginning as he walked the path of sorrows. They were just beginning. Jesus' sorrows would conclude with him drinking the cup of the wrath of God against all sin for all time. And on the other side of Jesus' paradox, his eternal hope that he balanced against this present suffering was you and me. And he weighed them. And he did not give up. And he did not go, give in. And he did not go back. Jesus instead got up and staggered down the Via Dolorosa because for him, you tip the scales. Guys, it is super important as we get ready to gather next week for Easter to celebrate the victory of Jesus over the power of sin, personal sin, global sin, and death. See, on that, it's super important you get this. On that Roman road, there is a stop which you can't drive by. Some would argue that on the trip, this is the point of no return. Paul says that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, once you have decided that Jesus needs to drive, once you've settled on his way and not your way, and then in light of the inevitable hardships that this trip towards life is going to bring, here's the deal. Though you are not driving, the trip towards life is anything but passive. You're going to need to make a choice. You're going to need to draw a line in the sand. You are going to need to declare with your lips and settle it somewhere deep in your heart that Jesus is who he said he is. And then listen now. If you do that, you will live. And there is life out there for you. Life right here right now, and life eternal, if you won't give up, if you won't give in, if you won't turn back, you will find it. You'll find it through him, you'll find it in him, and you'll find it with him. He is the road to life. He is life. Guys, this Sunday before Easter, confess with your lips today. Declare like never before with your hearts. And I'll see you back here next Sunday to celebrate the end of this trip at a place called life.